cliffcentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and uh, welcome to the Laws of Life on Cliff Central. <clears throat> For this series of the Laws of Life, we, de- we are really delighted to have join- joining us international law firm Eversheds Sutherland of Santon. Uh, they've been with me in the past, uh, some of their attorneys, and I've, we've got together, we've, we're collaborating now so that their attorneys can join me on a regular basis and uh, will be guests on my show as we go along. Um, they, <clears throat> as an international firm, they, um, they have lawyers that specialize or specialist attorneys on nearly every subject of the law. And on each of my shows in this series, one of their specialist attorneys will be joining me in studio. Like for today's show, we are tackling <clears throat> mining law, which is an extremely specialized field. Uh, I'm an attorney as well. And not many of us know about mining law. There are very few specialist mining law attorneys in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, therefore, I'm delighted to have joining me two specialist attorneys from Evershed Sutherland. They are firstly partner and head of mining and infrastructure, Warren Beach. Welcome to you, Warren. Thank you, Gary. Good. And then Rafilwe Vengani, she's a senior associate. Thanks, Gary. Dumela to you. Dumela. Yeah. Great to have you. And then uh, today we have a special friend of mine. He's uh, been on my show a number of times. His name is Peter van Ikerk. And Peter is the managing partner of, uh, of Evershed Sutherland in Santon. Uh, so, Pete, we're going to talk to you first. Before I just uh, bring you in, I just want to mention that uh, we've also, in partnership with Legal Talk South Africa, and they have 224,000 Facebook members, and they're growing daily. And they have agreed to pin this very show and all our shows on top of their Facebook page for all their members to download and listen to. So we're very grateful uh, to them. Uh, have a look, Legal Talk South Africa, have a look at their Facebook page. You'll see uh, a lot of good stuff comes up there and a lot of good answers. So, uh, Peter, managing partner of Eversheds, let's talk about uh, Eversheds Sutherland, if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick overview. I know uh, that um, this is a massive law firm internationally. Tell us a bit about them. Yes, hi, Gary. <coughs> it's nice to be on your show again. It's a privilege for all of us. Uh, there's been a lot happening in the world of Evershed Sutherland. Um, our global footprint continues to grow. We now have uh, 69 offices in 34 countries. Um, our footprint in the U.S. is growing fairly rapidly. We now have eight offices there. We've recently off- opened in Chicago and San Diego. And... Having three, three th- over 3,000 lawyers in the organization gives us access to, to considerable expertise, which, which we do use, and obviously for the benefit of our, our clients. Locally, as you know, we have offices in Durban and Mauritius, and we delighted, as you, as you say, to have acquired Warren Rafilwe and their team. Uh, mining is a highly specialized area. Mm. Uh, we regard it as a major coup because, as you say, not many firms have got this expertise 
and we had we didn't have any of it before Warren and the team joined, and we now overnight uh, one of the leaders in this field, and uh, I'll I'll leave it to you and Warren to discuss areas that we're not certain about. As you know, I read something very interesting, Pete, and, and that is that uh, Evershed Sutherland, their global revenue increased by 10% last year, but it is now U.S. dollars 1,175 billion. Now, that comes from sweat and toil of lawyers. It's not like they're selling products. It's a quite amazing to think that lawyers can generate that kind of income and uh, credit to your, to your firm. It it, yeah. it it is, as you say, absolutely amazing. Um, sadly, the South African team isn't bringing in too many of the billions <laughs> of dollars, but uh, we're doing our best, uh, and that's one of the reasons we've got uh, Warren and the Fieldware on board to bring in uh, 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 up the billions. Yeah, while I have you, Pete, there's something that I read about you. You were nominated and recognized for some uh, award, standout lawyer by your clients. What is that about? You can brag a little. I'll give you 10 well, seconds. <laughs> there's not much to brag about. You know, you should never believe everything you read. Hey, well, uh, I do Gary, in this but, case. Uh, <laughs> um, I have absolutely no idea. You get nominated from time to time by your peers, but I don't put much store in that because you get people, and in my game being a litigator, you get people who like you and don't like you, and certainly those who don't like you aren't going to nominate you for any awards, no matter how good or bad you are. Well, anyway, we're going to get you on your own on your specialist subject down the line. That's and we'll see how good you are. Yeah. I know that you, you, you acted in one matter where you got a billion rand settlement for breach of contract. Y- yeah. I see you arrived in your Lamborghini today. I don't watch well, you talk about that. As, <laughs> as it happened, I... I arrived in my rav, but uh, the, the, billion, the billion rand settlement is, is 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 correct. Um, which was a a massive matter against uh, a couple of pension funds. Maybe we should talk about it down the line. So we, to look we, forward to. We, we 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 can do that. It it lasted actually over a, a month in court, and uh, it was obviously it had a very good result for our clients, which was very exciting. Good. Warren Beach is a specialist mining lawyer. He has a master's in what? It's a combined master's, company law and environmental. It was done a long, long time ago. It's probably not even relevant anymore. Okay, well, it is to <laughs> me. Uh, Rafael, where you've uh, become uh, VITS, I think. That's and then your LLB, where was that done? At VITS as well. Okay. Which You're is also, why we recruited her, because we, I'm also from that. Oh, there you go. You have a post-grad certificate in economics? Yes, I do. From? So it's from the Witz Mandela Institute. Institute. Yeah. And what they do is they offer different courses, post-grad courses, mm-hmm. that you can specialize in, and economics is the one I chose. Why did you choose mining law while I have you? Gosh, mining law chose me. I always oh. say that. It's, it's a very wonderful field. It's very mm. dynamic. Mm. Um, and... You, you can just grow and do different types of law within the sector. How many women mining lawyers are there? <laughs> very few. Too few. Yeah. One. <laughs> yeah. One other. <laughs> really. Amazing. It's a very yeah. small, it's a very small niche market and yeah. we're, you know, we, we all know each other yeah, I'm relatively. Sure you do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's talk to you guys about the South African mining industry, which unfortunately and sadly has been referred to as a sunset industry. And basically on its last legs, I don't know whether you'll be in business for much longer. But anyway, production, unfortunately, has been down year on year. 
And I remember, was it 10, 15 years ago, we were the, we were the world's leading gold producer. And now, um, I think we've weighed down the pecking order even behind countries like Australia. Is that correct, Warren? Have I got this right? Uh, Gary, you have got it right. I mean, we, historically, the industry has been a significant contributor, mm. um, both in respect of, of GDP and in respect of the number of employees that have been employed in the industry. At its peak, there were seven to 800,000 direct employees employed in the industry. That has changed. It's come down to about 350,000. And unfortunately, that is reducing year on year. But what is important is the multiplier effect. So it's not just a case of 350,000 employees. It's a case of up to 10 people that each employee in the industry in turn supports. Mm -hmm. So the multiplier effect is still significant. And typically uh, with the industry, we regard the industry as a barometer of the state of the economy. So when the mining industry is not doing well, it shows that the economy is not healthy because of the network. The industry supports a phenomenal network of other service providers from taxis taking people to work all the way through to production of pumps, digging shafts, etc. So it's, a, it's still a significant industry. It's certainly not a sunset industry. What it is, is it's, a, it's an industry that is reaching maturity and significant maturity, but it's certainly not the end. The green metals are becoming quite uh, topical. Well, before we get okay. to that, let me ask you this. Yes. Are we, is it true that some of our, our most important minerals, like coal, are being depleted? Are we, do we have enough? Is there... Is there stuff to pull out the ground? Where are we on this one? We are, there's still coal in the ground. Coal, yeah. uh, coal is getting a bad rap at the moment for, for various reasons. Yeah. Uh, pollution, uh, what it does to people's health, what it does to the roads because it, uh, coal is typically transported by road. But it is still, it's still an industry which has got at least 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it still will be around in our lifetimes. Uh, it's still, the South African uh, economy is still significantly based on, on coal and it's going to be here for at least 30 to 40 years. Uh, despite electrical vehicles and, and the green economy and renewables, that's a medium to long-term play. Coal is still here to stay. What about gold and platinum? Gold is still uh, – some of the hedge funds are now turning back to gold mm-hmm. um, with the emphasis on gold investment. Uh, the price is, is relatively stable and, and increasing. So although the gold sector in South Africa is not good, it's not the player it used to be. It's still an important metal. Uh, gold, the difficulty or the challenges with gold in South Africa, uh, the depth of our mines, very, very deep mines, three kilometers plus, sure. um, the distance from the shafts to where the people are working, 11, 12 kilometers. So, you know, a typical eight to 10 hour shift, you'll only get about four to five hours on the face. Mm-hmm. So all of those challenges are becoming quite significant, but gold is still a role player and it's still seen as an investor friendly metal. You talk of, you, you were talking about green min- uh, minerals. And I know there's an increasing demand for green minerals uh, because it's going to support electric vehicles and all the rest. Just explain to us and and our listeners, what is a green mineral and where is South Africa in this race? Okay. So the green minerals or green metals are typically all the metals and minerals that are needed to get to an economy on based on renewable energy, and the typical example is is electrical vehicles. Anything that requires a battery requires lithium, cobalt, etc. And those are, are are 
rare earths they, they found in very difficult mining spots. Uh, South Africa, unfortunately, doesn't necessarily have the reserves of those metals that we would like. Mm. Uh, it's typically found um, you know, further north of our borders. But we still can contribute, and that is where the future is going to be. Uranium, nobody likes to talk about, but we still have good reserves of uranium. Not a green uh, mineral at all, but still plays an important role in our future power requirements. I've read that thanks to the country's, our country's clumsy and primitive regulatory regime, we're not quite in the green mineral race. Is that the reason why we're not there? There are a number of reasons why. It's, it's the deposits, in other words, with a focus on gold, platinum, uh, copper, etc., and, and historically where, where the focus was. That's one of the reasons. Regulatory uncertain, regulatory and policy uncertainty has been a major concern. Mm. And why we're a little bit behind there, um, it's, it's turned, it's focused, uh, it's focused the minds of investors and investors have taken relatively cautious decisions about investing in South Africa, certainly from around 2010, 2012, going back all the way to Marikana. It placed significant strain on, on the industry because of investment potential that has, taken a bit of a downturn, and that's a huge contributor to just not being ahead of the pack on that uh, race for green minerals. Let's talk a little about, we'll come back to, there's so many things <clears throat> that I want to talk to you about. I don't know where to get to first, but let's talk about illegal mining, which is which is very much on everyone's lips, the zama zamas. It's a concern. Our unemployment rate in this country is about 28%. And I know that uh, you said the mining industry employs about 350,000 people, which is a very sharp fall in the last 10 years. So clearly miners are losing their jobs and people need to eat. Mm. What is going on with illegal mining and what does it mean for the econ- economy? And can these zama zamas and the whole issue be regularized? Gary, my view is it can be regularized. It, ne- it needs to be regularized, and I'll come back to that. But just to go back to your starting point, there is a massive pool of talent out there. In other words, mine workers that have lost their jobs but know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's logical that they get pulled in in some way to, to the illegal mining scenario with the promise of, of making money. The, the tragedy about illegal mining, and there's a couple of tragedies about it, but the key is that the person who spends two to three weeks underground extracts an ounce of a, of, of a metal uh, gets paid 150 rand, for example. Yeah. It then goes up the value chain. It gets brought to surface. The person buys it for 250, and so the value increases as it goes up. The real, the people that are taking the risks don't make the money. It's syndicated. It has to be bought somewhere. It has to be refined somewhere. It needs to be exported somewhere. Those are the people that are making the money. Yeah. Um, the social drivers for illegal mining are very strong. And given South Africa's position at the moment, you can see why there is a natural increase in, in illegal mining. We're not unique. The rest of the world grapples with similar similar problems. Um, you look at Latin America, look, for example, Ecuador. They started with illegal mining. They've regularized it, and they've gone up the value curve to medium to large-scale mining. We've done it the other way around. We've had formal mining for hundreds of years, and we are now – learning to live with a parallel universe of illegal mining and legal mining going on sometimes in the same shafts. It has to be regularized. It's difficult to do that, but it is it, it is a, a priority point that needs to be addressed, and it is going to be focused on making it as simple as possible for miners to obtain licenses to mine, and that's where the starting point has to be for, for that regularization program. What is the whole – why aren't we there yet? What's the difficulty in giving out these – Licenses. The the 
mining law does make provision for mining permits, mm. but they are still they still don't necessarily address small scale mining, proper small scale mining. Uh, there's, my sense is there's not a political will at the moment to go that regularization route. There are difficulties because mature mining companies obviously argue that if they are going to be judged against very high standards, um, the small scale miner is going to pollute just as, or potentially pollute just as badly. Why should they not be managed? So there's a political will element as well. Mm. So the zummers, zummers as we call them, are going to stay as they are and doing, doing it illegally with through syndicates, and when when this could be regularized and should be. Um, the, the reality is that the, the illegal miners or the zamazamas are there, mm-hmm. and you get two general types of zamazamas, uh, existing shafts where they're working alongside employees that are employed by the mining companies, which uh, assist the, the illegal miners in getting access to, to shafts, and then you've got the old abandoned mines, and mm. we've got so many of those. In Mpumalanga, the estimate is there's probably 200 abandoned mines in Mpumalanga alone, mm. uh, and that, that's not an indication of the, of the country, but, but certainly it, it's a good starting point. So it's, it's, it, the mines are there, the old mines are there, the new mines are there. Mm. Illegal mining is here to stay for so long as the social fabric is what it is. I read that the Mineral Council of South, Af- of South Africa estimates lost sales, taxes and royalties of about 21 billion rand a year through illegal mining. Now, if that could be re- regular, uh, regularized, that money would come into the coffers, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and that's it's a massive. And, and the amounts which are estimated are are purely estimates. I mean, there's no real handle on on the the volume of illegal mining and what is being lost. Mm. But those figures that you quoted are, are are a very good indicator. And yes, so the fiscus is losing out on on revenue. Um, it's going. To, the general consensus is that a lot of that money is going. Outside of our borders, so it, it's leakage, both from a tax point of view and and revenue that is being spent in the country. I feel where you can jump in. Anything? <laughs> uh, Warren's covering it, so please feel free. Oh, oh. I know you do as attorneys. You do a lot of health and safety work with the mines, against the mines, whatever it may be. Let's talk about health and safety for a moment. Um, I read that uh, there's a recent upward trend in fatal accidents on mines, and. Uh, Surely there are health and safety laws in place to prevent this. And if so, why are all these fatalities happening? What's going wrong? Year on year, there has been a decrease in the total number of fatalities, but it's still too high. It's, it's a frightening number every year. There have been a recent, there has been a recent trend again. Um, across the country, and that is the concern. So year on year from around 2012, there's been a consistent downturn, but the number of fatalities is still, uh, obviously, the principle is no one should should be injured at all, and everybody mm. should go home every day uninjured. So the principle is one fatality is one fatality too, too much. Many, yeah. uh, you know, the, that's the general principle. But given the, the number of fatal inquiries that, that we represent companies in, they are common, they are a number of common trend, uh, trends. One of the common trends is management of change. So people become so complacent with the workplace that they walk past aspects which they shouldn't be walking past. So complacency and management of change, when something changes in the workplace, people don't respond properly to that. That is probably one of the the, the biggest underlying themes to most of the accidents is is just complacency. Mm-hmm. 
And that is that is obviously of concern. Uh, the whole principle of brother, sisters, keeper is built into the Mine Health and Safety Act, and that is not necessarily being applied as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's explanations that there are production pressures, etc. But the principle is nobody should allow anybody else to do anything unsafe, and that for me is is one of the key themes. When they have an inquiry, is it called an inquiry? It is. Where are these held? They typically held on the mine. It's yeah. under the auspices of the Mine Health and Safety Inspectorate. Yeah. That is a division, a specialist division of the Department of Mineral Resources. It is run by specialist inspectors. Yeah. They are the presiding officers and evidence leaders. It's held at the mine. So the the, the inquiry itself is held at the mine. Yeah. The consequences of that inquests are held in court as usual. Uh, criminal prosecutions are, are held in, in, in court as usual. But those are held on the mine themselves. I know that President Ramaphosa declared that he intended to tighten the laws to hold mining operators liable for accidental deaths. What does he mean by that? The the Mine Health and Safety Act and its predecessor, the Minerals Act, always made provision for prosecution. And, and obviously in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act, you've got culpable homicide, etc. So it's the, the framework has always been there, but the the challenge has been the enforcement and then proving uh, that there has been a breach connected to the death. Mm. So it's more, it's not necessarily a change in the law, but it's a change in resourcing at two levels. Resourcing at the level of the Mine Health and Safety Inspectorate. In other words, uh, upskilling the inspectors so they can cr- create the right record and get the right evidence. And then secondly, making sure that there's a good relationship with the National Prosecutions Authority so that these matters are, are actually taken forward. You you write a very interesting newsletter, which I had the privilege of, of reading. And uh, in one of them, you say the balance is shifting, and I'm quoting you, to, emphas- to emphasis on health and safety with the understanding that there may be a reduction in profits. You also say that globally a balance has been achieved organically rather than being forced through legislative changes. Take me through that. What do you mean by that? So the the the, the legislative framework is there, and mm. uh, as with most things, if you don't change behaviour, you can't change the outcome. Mm. And it is really a focus on behaviour, organic growth. Uh, you know, if, uh, employees that work on hard rock mines talk about listening to the rocks talk. Mm. They say the rocks speak to you, the the, the hanging wall speaks to you, mm. and that's a behavioural. If you walk past and, and it doesn't sound right. And you walk past it, something the rock is going to fall. Uh, the, the the legislation, the Mine Health and Safety Act says you must do things to make sure the rock doesn't fall. But if the people don't, in their behaviour patterns, acknowledge it can fall and deal with it, then accidents are going to happen. So it's more organic. It's more about behaviour and change in behaviour, uh, and risk tolerance, reducing risk tolerance. It's it's the same as driving 160 kilometers to the mine gate and then suddenly having to drive 30 kilometers an hour. It's a behavior. You need to drive slower to the mine gate so that you can behave better and safely, more safely in the mine. What is what? Did, what did you mean by saying there could be a reduction in profits? The if you acknowledge that, and it's built into the Mine Health and Safety Act. Every employee has the right to refuse to carry out a dangerous instruction mm-hmm. and the right to withdraw from a dangerous working place. That often means that production stops. Mm-hmm. 
immediately. Does it happen in practice? It does happen in practice. Mm. It, it's perhaps not used as much as it should. But if you stop the work in place, there's an escalation procedure. There's a procedure to get it back up and running. And for that period, it can be a week. It could be longer than a week. That panel or that work in place is on stop and production is lost from that area. So health and safety quite mm. often in this phase that we're in um, is is going to impact on production because the focus is on health and safety. Let's talk about the miners that contracted, uh, was it TB, tuberculosis, silicosis? Silicosis, They yes. were awarded, I don't know how many billions in the high court or there was a settlement last year. Correct. Um, it shows, I guess, that claims against gold mining companies will be unlimited in the future if this is, if this is any indication. So the, the, the silicosis settlement arose out of a unique process that ran almost 10 years mm. and the the silicosis is a is a disease that's particular to to hard rock mining particularly gold mining its exposure to alpha quartz dust um, which you don't get at, at for example platinum mines. so it's very unique to the to the gold industry mm. the fund that has been set up and the amounts that have been paid into this fund and then to be dispersed to claimants over the over the years is unique it's it's a it's a unique settlement uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that claims are going to be unlimited. The funds have been established and claimants need to demonstrate connection and uh, cause and effect and that they're presenting with silicosis linked to exposure to, to, to alpha, cost, alpha quartz dusts. Okay, so five billion is being paid into like a trust and the, the actual miner will have to show that he's been affected in some way or other Correct. in order to qualify to get some of that money. Correct. So the bar is not set very high. So mm. it's a t- the, the criteria includes showing that the person was employed at a, at a gold mine, mm. um, duration of exposure, and that they present with silicosis. So you know those three criteria need to be met. A person that has got ocula- occupational lung disease not linked to silicosis, for example, wouldn't have a claim. So it's very focused on the, uh, the silicosis occupational lung disease. You may or may not know this. Are the mines insured against this, or do they pay it out of their coffers? This is paid out of the coffers. So yeah. there is statutory insurance. Uh, there is There are two pieces of legislation that apply there. The Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act, which applies to everybody. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a specific occupational lung disease uh, piece of legislation which applies to the mining industry. That's the Occupational Diseases in Mines and Works Act. The the whole gold settlement came out of a very interesting case. Um, Mr. Mankai was uh, employed by Anglo Gold Ashanti many, many years ago. Mm. And he was exposed to alpha quartz, presented with silicosis. And because his claim was under Odimwa, um, the the question the key question uh, that that the court had to deal with was whether he he could actually sue his employer mm. because there is a mechanism for for compensation it's incredibly low under under coida if uh, under Odimwe, if i recall his settlement was approximately 16000 rand sure. had he been compensated under coida it would have been about 2.9 million rand mm. and so there's a disparity mm. and uh, the the whole question that the court had to deal with was could his claim be excluded against his employer, Angler Gold Ashanti, because of Section 35 of COIDA, which prevents employees from suing their employers uh, for, for occupational lung disease? So the Mankai case was, was very, very um, unique. It dealt with, with opening up these claims. And unfortunately, Mr. Mankai passed away shortly before the judgment was handed down. But the Mankai judgment was the forerunner to the, to the silicosis settlement. The, the, the settlement arose from a class action. 
So that's where all the miners get together, which is a new piece of our law dating back uh, not many years. Are we talking about the last 10 years or so or five years? How long has class actions been around in our law? It, the, the facilities for class actions have been there constitutionally, yeah. but the, the mechanisms, one of them, Pioneer Foods, the bread case, yes. actually opened up the, the silica. Uh, How, long up, ago? How long ago? How long ago? Pioneer Foods was probably about six years ago. Yeah. So Pioneer Foods, yeah. th- that opened up the what whole. What was that case about? Bread. Yeah. It was about bread. Okay. It was about bread pricing yeah. and, yeah. uh, Literally the price of a loaf of bread And yeah. how that was costed As it was distributed mm. And it was about the class action That, that persons should not be paying more for a loaf of bread Simply because of where they lived Or how it was delivered to them It's quite a complicated mechanism class action People shouldn't think That they can all band together 20, 20 of them and sue You've got to apply to court And you've got to get permission and so on Correct, correct. So there's, a, there's kind of like an application Before the, before the main Before the main Kind of action, correct. So yeah, class action is is complicated. It's it's complicated in that you need certification. You're quite yeah, right. So it's yeah. a it's an application for certification. You have to be a class. You have to have common cause, and you need to be certificated before you can take it further. Mm. So there there are hurdles and there are checks and balances. You're quite right. We can't get together and decide, you know, to to go after a particular company for class action. But uh, the the listeriosis case. That's a good basis for, for a class action. We had the sausage. Was that listeriosis? The sausage? That was the sausage, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. And the ham and, and cold meats, right. yeah. Pete, do you know about that? You want to no, contribute? I no. Leave that to you. Okay. <laughs> <good job. laughs> a lot talk. of I've got so, m- I've got so much to throw at you. Forgive me, but uh, we, we trying to be, you know, get this through because it's just also interesting and novel and new to us. Social license. Hmm. What is a social license to mine? What does that mean, really? Social license to mine, it's a concept that's been around for a while. Um, again, last eight to ten years. It's becoming more and more critical, and it's being enforced. Although it's not a license condition, <clears throat> it is becoming more and more important. So social license basically means that if your affected parties, like your communities, so your doorstep communities to mine, do not agree to mine, you will never mine. That's effectively what the social Expe- license Explain thing. that in practice. Give me an uh, example of that. In practice, yep. if, if, uh, if a company is applying for a mining right, mm-hmm. and the, the Kolobeni community is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. You've probably read they've said no mining on our dunes ever for many reasons. What area is that? That is dune mining, and that's down on the, in the Eastern Cape. Okay. So it's based on, on dune mining. The community has claimed uh, under various legislation they've claimed protection of those dunes including uh, the cultural rights to the dunes and their livelihood and have basically said to the Minister of Mineral Resources you will not grant a mining right to the applicant who's applied for it mm-hmm. because you, we, we just don't agree to it and there have been a number of examples like that so effectively the process involves an application for the mining right that goes through a Interested in affected party consultation process, you recognize, you identify and recognize parties such as the communities, and effectively the minister will not be in a position to grant a right unless the communities agree to it going forward. And that is through consultation process, which they're arguing needs to go a step further to agreement, and that has to take into account cultural and traditional structures for that agreement. But basically, companies going forward, 
that do not get the social license to mine won't get the piece of paper, in other words, the mining right. And if at any stage during the, the life of the mining right they don't maintain that relationship with the communities, their operations will be disrupted. Is this, is this aligned to what I know as fracking? Was it a separate concept? No, fracking is complete. Yeah. No, Fra- <laughs> fracking. What is fracking? <laughs> fracking is a is an animal all on its own. Yeah. Um, hydraulic fracking is basically drilling down through the crust of the earth into into pockets of of gas, mm. um, pumping of water chemicals to release that. So it basically separates the layers in the earth and releases these gases or deposits of gas to to the surface, and it is. Uh, it's seen as a considerable concern because of the chemicals that are used. Um, you're disturbing the Earth's crust and you're potentially polluting aquifers and other water resources. So fracking is, is generally so, a, a, a topic which, which people try and stay away from. A grade one question. Yes. Who owns the minerals on my piece of property? The state holds it in custody. Yes. So historically, minerals in South Africa were owned by the landowner, so it was connected to the land. Mm. So if you owned the surface, you owned the minerals underneath the surface. Mm. You could separate that. You could sell the minerals or, or give a mineral lease to a company. That all changed post-1994 with our constitutional democracy. That all changed the new laws. All minerals are held by the state in custody for all South Africans. You only acquire ownership once you've been given a mining right. Mm. Then your ownership in the extracted minerals re- goes to the holder of the So if I right. find oil under my property, it belongs to the state? You keep quiet about that. You go and get somebody <laughs> to help you, yeah. such as BP or something like that, and you yeah. make money off them. Let them go through the hassle of, of getting the rights. So really, um, no one can no one can really um, conduct a mine on anyone's property or try and mine anything or or do fracking or anything without permission. That's that's the law. You Correct. So your first permission is is a prospecting right or mining right, mm. which allows you to do that. And then obviously you need landowner permission. There is a, pr- a process of of engagement with the landowners. So the landowners are not completely excluded from the process, but they don't have the rights that they did pre ninety four. There's a case that you know about, I believe, BP Southern Africa regarding private prosecutions. Yes. What is that case about? There's a in all ventures in South Africa where your activities are going to impact on the environment, you need environmental authorizations. Mm-hmm. They lengthy processes, they cumbersome processes, and sometimes they take four to five years, if not longer. So typical, Give us an example, yeah. So water use license can take you between two to four years to get a water use license. Mm-hmm. An environmental authorization, in other words, if you want to build a road or, in this case, a, a petrol station, you need environmental authorizations. Those can take anything between two to three years. Mm-hmm. There are environmental studies that need to take place. There's engagement, consultation, and obviously there are constraints within the departments that grant these license, the, the typical licenses. So it takes a long time. What's the... Environmental laws, the national environmental laws, the National Environmental Management Act does under Section 24G. It basically says, if you are naughty, come and tell us and we'll retrospectively give you authorization. Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies took that approach. They basically said, we're going to, it's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. Mm -hmm. So they'd start the activity without authorization, then go and apply for a 24G. Mm -hmm. But the basis of a 24G is the admission of guilt. You admit that you've done wrong. You admit that you have not complied. And then you're applying retrospectively for authorization. Yes. 
that's happened extensively under South Africa. There was always the potential for prosecution under NEMA based on the admission of guilt, but there was little appetite and there was quite a big debate between the Department of Environmental Affairs and the Director of Public Prosecutions. Part of the rectification application, the 24G, you'd have to pay an administrative fine which is based on a calculator, and then they would consider, the Department of Environmental Affairs would then consider your application. The DPP's view was that was your punishment. Mm-hmm. You paid the admin fine. Mm. But the DEA's, the Department of Environmental Affairs's view was no, you should also be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Nothing really happened. There was an impasse between the two departments until the BP judgment. So there's always provision for private prosecution. Well, what is that judgment about? What are the facts of that case? The facts of the case is BP set up a number of uh, petrol stations mm. without going through the environmental authorization process. Mm. They applied for rectification. What should they have asked for in advance? Water use licenses, environmental authorizations for uh, storage of, of fuel, or, uh, fuel products, mm. uh, digging holes in, in the ground to put the tanks in, mm. uh, roads, clearing, clearing of vegetation. So there are a whole host of, of environmental authorizations that they, that they should have applied for. They didn't. They went the 24G route. They applied for rectification post the fact. They paid the administrative fines. DPP said, no problem. Uh, we're not going to prosecute until Uzani uh, decided to, to prosecute them. Who is Uzani? Who, who, who prosecuted them? There, there's a, there's various views, um, in relation to Uzani and whether Uzani was properly motivated. There's suggestions that they were paid by rival petrol stations. Mm. Rival companies. The motivation doesn't really matter. The fact is, they they were set up as a as a public interest body, mm. and and decided to prosecute. Were funded by some funders to to run the prosecution. And what happened to it? They were prosecuted based mm. on the admission of guilt in the Section Twenty Four G applications. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Let's move on to what you refer to as a mining charter three. Which was published, I think, late last year. Twenty-seven September, twenty eighteen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there seems to it seems to have resulted in some extensive debate and uncertainty. What is this mining charter three? So, mining charter three came logically. It was the third mining charter. First one came out in 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 twenty ten, uh, and basically the mining charter deals with the empowerment structures. There are a number of, of pillars in the mining charter, but effectively it deals with ownership and empowerment in ownership. It deals with procurement and how how the procurement structure should be looking, and it also deals with uh, employment equity. Mm-hmm. So the structure of, of boards of companies, mining companies, um, and the, the representation that is required there. But the key issue that was spoken about extensively prior to the publication of Mining Charter 3 was the once empowered, always empowered principle. In theory, and this is what a number of the mining companies, their view was when they empowered and disposed of certain assets that their empowerment would be recognized forever, uh, regardless of what happened and whether they fell below the 26% or not. The the Department of Mineral Resources or the, the, the minister had a different view and said there has to be a limit to the continuing consequences of your empowerment. And that was the real debate between the 2016 version that was published, the 2017 version that was published, and then ultimately Mining Charter 3. And uh, as you know, the Minerals Council has again challenged Mining Charter 3. They've been in discussions. They have served a review application that was done on the 27th of March. Because of the 180-day period, 
so from 27 September to 27 March, they had to serve and file the, the review application. So it's not over. It's still, it's still uncertain in, in many respects. Mm. And that fight is certainly not done yet. Okay. Rafilwe is chomping at the bit. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, uh, the role of women in the mining industry. And I, I, according to a chair, the chairman of, of women in mining, it's probably a man, otherwise they'd say she's a chairperson. Her name is Lindiwe Nakeria. Do you know her at all? Not personally, no. She said that mining companies are working hard to be inclusive and transform, but it's still taking time to have more women enter the industry and be retained until they reach executive levels. Is that true? I mean, do we have women in, in high positions within, within the mining industry? I think we have very few women, Gary. So yeah. you'll, you'll know that, you know, historically and globally that, the, you know, the mining industry is a male dominated industry. Mm. But what makes South Africa very unique is that it led the process to transform the industry. So up until about 1990, you couldn't have women working underground and that was changed post 1990. Um, so we, we have led the way in terms of transforming the industry. But we do would a woman want to, to walk? Would they want to work underground? Some would. Some, do, some, some would. would, and some do. Some do. Some really? Do. Yes, yes, yes. And do they mix with the men uh, happily? Is underground? I guess. <laughs> well, I personally haven't been underground, but obviously I've met a couple of engineers. I've met a couple of, you know, mine managers. So what they yeah. do is they do mingle well with the, their male counterparts. They have to yeah. assert their authority, yeah. but it's all done in a very peaceful manner and in a way that everyone can be productive. Because at the end of the day, we just want to work. Mm. We just want to, to you know, absolutely change the sunset industry that you like to call. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I saw also that uh, some about sixteen women from South Africa were um, uh, were picked by the one hundred Global Inspirational Women in Mining in twenty eighteen, which is quite something, mm-hmm. uh, because. Uh, there are only, I mean, they say that there are, so, as you say, there are so few women within the mining sector that for South African women to get 16 of their women within this 100 was quite something. That's so, true, Gary. Yeah. So you'll see that we have SAWIMSA, the South African Women in Mining um, Nonprofit Organization. Mm-hmm. And what they do is their modus operandi is to empower the industry, is to empower women, is to, you know, fund bursaries and find bursaries for young ladies to study and be part of the industry. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where this, this number has come from, yeah. um, such organizations as SAWIMSA. In order to kind of get into the mining industry, do you have to have some, like, Great marks in any subject, your maths and science, or is that where, where do they recruit people from? Many of our audience, or a lot of our audience, is young. They may want to get into the mining industry. What should they? How do they get in? Well, obviously, you'd pick a specialization. You've mm. picked mining as an industry, but are you? Do you want to be an engineer? Do you want to go into law? So that will direct you. Mm. Obviously, if you went into law, then you'd have to have an LLB and be admitted, and then go within the sector. Mm. You've got um, the Wits University, which offers a prospecting and um, mining rights course, but it's a six months course. So we still have quite a few. Um, ways to go in finding qualifications that specifically relate to the mining industry. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be an engineer, then you go the BSc route and you, you take it from there. Are there any cases that you want to talk about that you can talk about that may have uh, been reported that you were involved in or is it kind of something that you can't mention clients' names about? 
Anything you want to talk to us Not about? Not cases, but I will oh. say, like I said, we are the leading in this industry in terms of transformation. Mm. Um, in 2015, we had the guidelines that were published by you know the DMR, which specified that there has to be a mandatory code of practice in terms of PPE for women. Mm. So PPP is protective equipment that you wear. And historically, you are having women wearing men's outfits, which obviously isn't comfortable. It isn't geared towards our female form. And as of 2015, companies are making way to make sure that the the attire fits our form and we can work productively and as comfortably as the male counterparts. Excellent. Cool. You're not off the hook yet, Warren. <laughs> I want to talk to you about uh, your there are new strike rules, yes. which every HR person wants to know about, I suppose, yeah, within minds. And let's dwell for a moment on that. Do you believe the new strike rules will impact the number of strikes and be, are they going to be recognized by trade unions? What's happening there? So the, the new strike rules were aimed predominantly at trying to slow things down and bring it into a structure where the parties actually thought about things a little bit more carefully before they went on strike. The trade unions have been have not been happy with the strike rules. They've argued, NUMSA, for example, in particular, has argued that it impacts on their constitutional right to, to strike. And one of the key, let me go back a step, one of the key changes is the secret ballot and the requirement to have the secret ballot. And the second big change is to is for the parties to get together before they go on strike. You've always had notification, you've had a 48-hour notification period, but now the, the new strike rules are secret ballot and the parties need to get together and try and arrange picketing rules, etc. Mm. So NUMSA and and, and I'm not picking on NUMS, I'm, I'm, you know, just they've been very vocal about it. But most of the trade unions have have indicated that in their view, uh, it, it's impacting on their constitutional right to strike. From the employer's perspective, there's been positive views because it has certainly, and we've had a couple of examples where it slowed strikes down um, and, and slowed the process down. Whether it's going to work in the mining industry is, is still going to be something which uh, which we're going to have to look at over the next couple of months mm. in particular, and, and we are going into a potential strike phase again within the industry. So the secret ballot, and what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that the strike is unprotected, but in one of the recent cases in the Labor Court, the Labor Court granted an interdict because the, because the union had not conducted their secret ballot. Mm. So there's going to be, certainly in my view initially, while everybody finds their feet, mm. there are going to be more applications to the Labor Court for strike interdicts based on that secret ballot and the failure of the parties to get together. Um, the unions are also complaining. They're saying if we get together and talk about the strike, the employer's got time to get in mm. you know, alternative suppliers, etc. Mm. Uh, and, and there are some concerns, but all in all, my view is that the strike rules are probably a good thing. Hopefully it will lead to more peaceful strikes. Uh, if there if there has to be a strike, it'll be more peaceful. That is certainly the intention. It's to mm. uh, the aim is to reduce both the number of strikes and unfortunate violence associated with many of our strikes. You talk about disruption in African mining, and you've been quoted as saying that Africans need to be respected for their can-do approach. See? Yes. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I like it. Yeah. It's yeah. it's simply you know we we tend to get involved in a number of programs both in Africa and and in the rest of the world. And it's been fascinating to see the change, and particularly over the last 18 months, of the approach of the African leaders that present, for example, in London to investment forums and saying 
we've we've always you know you've always thought that we needed you. We don't actually. We can do it ourselves, mm. and that the time is right. We've got an incredible and an increasing number of young. Uh, persons who are going into the employment f- uh, phase and can provide labor going forward. So th- the number of employees or the potential number of employees, that age group of 18 to 25, that is increasing significantly. Secondly, the green minerals we're talking about are significantly found in, in Africa. So there are opportunities there. Mm. Um, the, the infrastructure development and the funding for that is growing. So generally speaking, there's a far more positive approach to investment saying that African, uh, Africa can do it mm. and that our approach is a can-do attitude. Good. What's the prognosis for South Africa? <laughs> this is the Gen- last question that I'm going to let you go. It's been so interesting. Yeah. Again, following on from your last question, it would be it would be reckless of any of us to stand up in any forums and say that South Africa is going down the tubes. Because that kind of negativity grows, whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. And we know what the rest of the world thinks. They see lions in the street, and they believe that that's true. They believe that we have lions' pets. Or when you see somebody at the airport, they say, you're from Africa. Yes. Do you know X? (laughs) No, no, that person's from Kenya. We're different countries. You know, that whole approach, I think it would be reckless of us to say anything other than we have to make it work. We're here, and we need to make it work. Cool. Many thanks to Warren Beach of Evershed Sutherland top mining lawyer in South Africa, together with Rafil Way. Thank you so much. Thank it's been you. It's been fascinating and uh, very enjoyable. To managing partner, Peter <coughs> van Nikker. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's um, been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, hasn't it, uh, sitting through I've this? I've been yeah. listening more carefully than you have. Uh. <laughs> yeah. You want to see whether Warren's worth uh, what he no. draws. <laughs> you know what they say, you always employ people who are, are much more clever than you. So Absolutely. we're getting it right. Yeah. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one. To mining companies, I'm sure, and, and anyone involved in mining, I have a friend who works in Steelport. It's a wonderful place. Have you been there? I spend a lot of time there in the Crown oh, really? Valley. Okay. I'd love to mention his name, um, <laughs> but I don't know whether I can. He works there. I said to him, please listen to this podcast, and he said he would. So there are a lot of very interested people on this particular subject. Without Evershed Sutherland, we wouldn't have been able to bring this to you because there are well, not many lawyers that know mining law. Am I right, Peter? You're 100% cool. correct. Thanks, Good. Gary. Until next time, I think you'll be back, Peter. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you then. Cheers. This is CliffCentral.com.